uh, is exiting the stage, I want you to think of the word neighbor. When you think of the word neighbor, who is a towering historical figure who, who made kind of the word neighbor famous? Mr. Rogers. Mr. Well, Jesus too. I think I heard Jesus out there, and we're going to talk about Jesus in a, in a minute. But yeah, Mr. Rogers. Um, Fred Rogers, to be exact. And in 1992, Mr. Rogers was awarded his 25th honorary doctorate degree at Boston University. And when he stood up to give the invocation at the commencement ceremony, 5,000 students immediately surged out of their chairs and they began cheering him on. And, and there was this stupendous ovation. And they wouldn't stop. In fact, they wouldn't stop until he did, you know, this. I don't know if he talked about pets, but... It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Would you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? He would say, hi, neighbor, right? How many of you watched that growing up or have seen it before? Yeah. You know, all you younger kids, you're going, really? What, what is that, right? I watched that every day when I came home from school from when I was four years old until I was ten. And you might not think that well. And, and of course, you know, we had four channels. Channel 13 was the public broadcasting uh, network, and that's the channel I watched it on. Usually pretty fuzzy. Uh, we had the dial, you know, that turned the antenna to point, point towards Scotts Bluff or towards Cheyenne. And, uh, and I watched it every day until I was 10. And then this last week, as I was kind of reading and reminiscing and all of that about Mr. Rogers, um, I read something that it, the target age for Mr. Rogers was three to five, right? I loved the show. I mean, it, and, and everything about that, the neighborhood, he, he, he wrote it about his neighborhood, Mr. McFeely and all of that. They're people that he actually knew. And, 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 you know, it was before video and all of that. And if our kids would sit down and watch a whole episode of it, they might go, really? You watched this? You know? But you can't watch too many children's shows these days and actually learn something of value. Um, and, and these shows, in, especially Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, um, you know, what, what about that line that he says there? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. And I wonder how many of us sitting here today who have people around us and those people that live around us are saying or thinking that about us. 
You know, I, I really would like to have a neighbor just like you. Or I would like to be a neighbor just like you. You know, it really takes action on our part when it comes to being a neighbor or to neighboring, as we're going to call it through this series. And the question is, are we going to be a good neighbor or not? You know, it, 10,000 steps. Uh, 10,000 steps, walking steps. According to the American Podiatric Medical Association, that's how many steps each and every one of us take every day. 10,000. And you and I will walk about 115,000 miles in our lifetime. Okay, that's four times around the world. That being said, the question is, are we using our steps wisely? Are we using any of the steps that we have allotted to us to walk over to our neighbors and be a good neighbor to them? You know, when I was growing up, the nearest neighbor was a half a mile away. And, uh, you know, we lived in the country, dirt county road, and our parents didn't haul us around. They didn't take us places. So if I wanted, I, our neighbor, there were three boys my age. Well, the middle one was my age, and there was an older and a younger one. And uh, we got together and played a lot. And how did we get there? We walked. We walked a half a mile in the heat of the summer to be with each other and to play. And we did lots of crazy, crazy stuff. But, uh, you know, that half a mile got shortened a little bit when they, re- they rebuilt our road up. And, you know, when they grade or rebuild a road up, the, the ditch is, like, really smooth. You know, it's just, just smooth like, a, like pavement. And we had this really crummy uh, go-kart. And uh, I would ride that like it was on a highway. It was the Autobahn for me, right? I'm riding back and forth from my friends. And, there, of course, there was the one time that the throttle stuck. And it was on full speed. And I'm barreling down the, you know, the borrow ditch and wondering how, no brakes, of course, how am I going to stop this thing? And finally found a big pile of dirt to drive it into and, and got stopped. But we, we would go through great efforts to spend time with each other. And uh, when I was growing up and when we were kids... So we're starting this series this morning called The Art of Neighboring. And the idea of the series comes from a book entitled by that, Art of Neighboring. Uh, it was written a few years ago by two church uh, leaders down in, Denver, in the Denver, Colorado area. Uh, many churches have done this, uh, this series and uh, my brother's church. I, I have watched their church over the last three or four months um, and I've seen their church just catch fire for their neighbors. And and am excited to see what God and I'm, I've read a few of the stories, and I can't wait to hear the stories that come from here, that come from um, our two services and the, the people that that are being um, moved and changed by this series. Um, now, the idea of the book came from three questions that these church leaders were kicking around. Okay, these three questions were: What is our dream for our community? And we've thought about that. What is our dream for our community? What does our city need the most? And if we could wave a magic wand and create one change, what would that change be? Those were the questions that they were pondering. And, and they decided that they were going to meet with the mayor. They met with the mayor of Arvada. Bob Fries was his name. And they asked him those questions. And his answer caught them off of guard. Um, this is what he said. Well, it's quite interesting and embarrassingly simple. The biggest single factor by far that helps a city, and I would say a county or a state, flourish is when it has a sufficient number of really good neighbors. The biggest difference maker for a city is actually good neighborhoods. 
When people do something just as simple as caring for their neighbors, all kinds of things begin to happen. When neighbors care, the elderly are touched out are watched out for. At-risk young people stop being so at-risk. Crime actually goes down and volunteering actually goes up. Odd things like people begin to take better care of their homes and better care of their yards. Property values are better. Isolated people are less lonely. Most of the problems we have could be eliminated or greatly reduced if our city just had a sufficient number of really good neighbors. People are always calling me to say, you should start this program uh, or you ought to start that program, program. And sometimes we try, but eventually, inevitably, the funding goes down. We're not able to find really good people to lead those programs. And it turns out that relationship always trumps program. If churches really were serious, this is the mayor of Arvada saying this, if churches really were serious about wanting to make a difference in our community, the best thing I think you could do, personal opinion, would be to start a kind of neighboring movement. Now, there is a city leader talking to some church leaders about their community. And there's a story in the Bible where a city leader, a teacher of the law, comes to Jesus and puts a similar question to, to Jesus. And it's in Mark chapter 12. If you turn to Mark chapter 12, let's just look at that. Um, and verses 30 and 31 in Mark chapter 12 are our memory verses for this week. And if you've not committed those to memory, please do. It's the, it's the foundation of our mission and our vision as a church. And it's very clear and it's very simple. Mark chapter 12, beginning at the end of verse 28. Jesus, uh, the, the teacher of the, of the law, says this, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Asking it to Jesus. The most important one, answers Jesus, verse 29, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus took his answer straight from the most sacred text in the entire Jewish Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 8. In fact, it was so sacred that they had a name for it. It's called the Shema. That is the prayer in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. There is one God who made everything, and people ought to love Him. And everything that they have, all in, Everyone was nodding. Great answer, Rabbi. We, yes, that's exactly right. And then Jesus did something that was, was different without even taking a breath. I think it was unexpected. His audience was possibly uncomfortable and, and, and looking at each other like, what, what's happening here in Mark chapter 12, verse 31? Jesus doesn't stop there, but he says, this second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. People must have been shocked. Nobody, nobody adds to the sacred text of the Bible. And, and here, Jesus is doing just that. For us, it would be unthinkable if, if we had a senator go to Washington, D.C. and get in front of the Senate and say, Guys, I've added something to the U.S. Constitution. Um, you know, no big deal. I've taken care of it. This is how now the U.S. Constitution is going to read. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, and give a free pass to every citizen to every national park. 
period. It would be silly, right? It would be ludicrous. You, you don't just add willy-nilly to the U.S. Constitution, and, and you don't just add willy-nilly to, to biblical text either. And, and Jesus does that. He says, look, the second is this. There is no commandment greater than these two. He says, one is not enough. The, 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 the uh, teacher of the law asks for one. What is the greatest commandment of all of those? Jesus says, well, this one and this one. And there's no greater commandment than these two. Loving God and loving people. Sometimes we try to overcomplicate it, I think. You know, it's those two things. Loving God and loving people. The guy just asked for one and Jesus said, I can't do it in one. There are two greatest commandments. Loving God and loving your neighbor. They're essential. They're, they're so integrated that it's impossible to separate the two. Well, why does Jesus do this? Jesus knows that in order for God's desire and His design and His delight to be experienced in life, it involves two things, not just one. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about life. Living life and loving others. Loving God and loving our neighbor. If you looked at each of the Ten Commandments, each one falls into one of those two categories that Jesus said. Loving God, loving people. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's, it's not enough to love God for us here. In fact, in the letter of 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says that if you say that you love God and you don't love your brother or your sister or your neighbor, that you're a liar. In other words, loving God, genuinely loving God, and being loved by God so transforms us that we love the things that God loves. And God loves our neighbors. As much as you and I sometimes maybe wish He didn't, if we're honest, God loves our Neighbors. When we read some of the Apostle Paul's writings in the New Testament, he actually does something that Jesus doesn't even do. He says that the whole law, all of the law, can be summed up in just a single statement. And that's in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. For the entire law, Paul says, is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what is obvious throughout the whole Bible is the absolute priority of loving our neighbors. It's so important that Jesus repeated it eight times. Love your neighbor. And it's become known as, if you look in your Bibles, there's a title been assigned to that section right there. What does it say? The great commandment or the greatest commandment. It's, it's become known as that. After 2,000 years, Jesus mentioned this, we're still calling it the Great Commandment. Now, I want you to write this down. I, I should have put it in your notes so that you didn't have to, but um, I want to emphasize this. We cannot succeed in life and fail at love. Okay? We cannot succeed in life and fail at love. And we cannot fail at life if we succeed at love. Think about that. 
We cannot fail at life if we succeed at love. Jesus is not talking about some sentimental feeling that our culture equates to love, some hormonal aspect of it. That's not what he's talking about. No, to love our neighbors is to intend their good as God defines good. To love our neighbors is to intend their good as God defines good. To love our neighbors is to desire for them the absolute best life possible. When is the last time you prayed for or wished upon your neighbor, any of your neighbors, that? The the absolute best of life. Better than you have. Oh Lord, please, please bless my neighbors. To love our neighbors is to desire for them the absolute best life possible. And the best life for our neighbors ultimately is for them to love God and experience salvation through Him. And to love their neighbors as they love themselves. And who's their neighbor? You are. We are. Now the word neighbor comes from the old word nigh, which means to draw nigh, to get very close to someone. A lot of people, I down in Colorado, you know, you've, you've driven by some of those new housing developments. They've perfected living close to somebody. You know, you, you, you can probably hear, you know, the father yelling at the dog at 10 o'clock at night from the, the room next door in the house next door. Some of those houses are so close to each other. Nigh is to get very close to someone. And burr is an old German or Dutch word that means to dwell, to live close to someone, to, to get close to someone and live there. Who are the people who are living close to you? Who are those people? Do you know their names? Do you know what's going on in their life? Jesus says to love the person next door, across the street, two doors down. Now, neighborhoods have really changed since Jesus' day, haven't they? Uh, Life is a lot different today. Do you know what the number one barrier in our culture today is to good neighboring? The garage door opener. It's the garage door opener. Uh, If you live in town especially, you know, for those in the country, you know, where your closest neighbor is a mile away or two miles away, it's not, doesn't pertain quite as much. But if you live in town... And let's say it's a cold winter day and you have an attached garage. What do you do when you come home from work? Push the button, garage door opens, you pull in, and then what you do? What do you do? You push the garage door, it closes, and nobody ever sees you ever again until the next morning when you pull out, right? You know, even our homes have changed. Since, since World War II, our architecture has changed. Pre-World War II, and our house is one of these, uh, built in like 1916 or 17, our house has had a big porch on the west side that facing the street. A big open porch when it was built. It was open. Why? So neighbors could visit with other neighbors. People hung out in their front yards and, and, and hung around. You know that time when the electricity went out here in Lingle for a day for like 24 hours? It was amazing to walk around town and see what people were doing. They didn't have anything to do inside the house because the power was out. So what were they doing? They were all outside the house and there were people gathering in other people's yards, visiting, talking, spending time with each other. 
You know, our house had a porch. And then later, decades later, before we purchased the house, somebody came and put windows in the porch. But they hinged them so that they could still open them, you know, but they could close them. And then when we bought the house, the, 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 the windows didn't really work that well. So we used the porch for stuff. We stored stuff in the porch. And then finally, we just got rid of it. We knocked the walls out between the living room and the bedroom and the porch, and we just sort of, you know, sucked it into the rest of the house. And then we built a, we built a deck, right? We all have decks. And, and we all have decks that most of us look at, and we wish we spent more time sitting on them. It's going to be a challenging series. You know, we've built fortresses around many of our homes in the cities. We've put up six-foot privacy fences. Now, you're probably thinking, some of you that have fences like that, you're thinking, Pastor Dave, if you knew my neighbor, you would know why I have a six-foot privacy fence. Now, I'm I'm certainly not going to stand up here and say that all of our neighbors are easy to get along with. Maybe some of us have neighbors that think we're not so easy to get along with. But I think it's worth asking ourselves, are we genuinely trying to love our neighbors or do we merely tolerate them? Because there's a big difference. There's a big difference. Privacy fences and garage door openers make it harder to love our neighbors. It takes a lot more intentionality today than it did in previous decades to actually love our neighbors. Now, the authors of that book, The Art of Neighboring, met with another city official, the assistant city manager, and uh, Vicki Rare, uh, to talk further about the quality of neighboring. And this is what she said. And I quote, From the city's perspective, there isn't a noticeable difference in how Christians and non-Christians neighbor in our community. Unquote. Now, that's not talking about our neighborhood. That's talking about theirs, right? So if Jesus is telling us that the biggest need of communities is great neighbors, and mayors and city managers are telling us that the greatest need in our communities is great neighbors, and if there is no noticeable difference in the neighborhoods where Christians live, and if Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God and then to love your neighbor, who do you think we should be learning how to love? Our neighbors. And we're going to spend the next four weeks getting pretty practical uh, when it comes to loving the people who live right next door or across the street or down the road from us. Um, If we live in an apartment, it's the people next door or the people above and below us. Who are your neighbors? Who are they? Literally, who are your neighbors? Now, the idea of coming together each week on Sunday mornings isn't just so that we can, you know, hear some interesting ideas. It's it's about taking action and uh, love works. And, And the very first step to loving our neighbors is to figure out who these people are. Um, I would love to be able to tell you that I know all of my neighbors, that I know all of the people on my block. Uh, I've not even met all of them, and I've lived there for over 20 years. Actually, not quite 20, but close. This week, I'm going to ask you to do two things. Okay? Two things. The first thing we're going to start doing right now, here in the next five minutes. The second is something I'm going to ask you to do once a week for the next four weeks. Okay? Now, on the, on the back of your sermon notes is a chart. It says, who is my neighbor? I want you to take that out. Take out this chart. And you see the middle square right there? That, that's your house. You can write your name in there. 
your family name. Maybe husband and wife and, and your last name. That's where you live. And the rest of the houses all around there, they're represented by the people who live around you. Now, you might be thinking, but Pastor Dave, I live on a corner lot. I don't have people all around me, right? Or I live out in the middle of nowhere. You know, I don't have... No one lives within five miles of me. Well, you know what? Work with me a little bit here, all right? You're not off the hook. That's a cop-out. Because Jesus said that we're to love our neighbors. Well, I do. I, 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 I love them. Okay, let's, let's put some action to that love. So the first step to loving our neighbor, and this isn't rocket science, is to know their names. You know, I, whenever I call somebody on the phone, you know, I'm calling a, a company or a business to talk about a bill or to ask a question. When the person on the other end answers the phone, I, I love it when they give me their name and when I can understand their name. And I will often ask them to repeat it if I don't understand it because I like to talk to them by their first name. I like to say, hey, Joe, I need help with this or whatever because to me it adds some humanity to the conversation. And, and we can't really love and care for our neighbors if, we're, if you know, we get home and we're like, hey, man, how's it going, dude? You know, it just, you know, after, after a couple weeks of that, your neighbor's going to go, he really doesn't know me. He can't even remember my name. Now, it's tough remembering people's names, okay? I have trouble with it. You know, I've, I've, I've learned a new pair of names this morning, and, and I think I can remember them. And at the end of the service, I'm going to be tested on this, and I'm going to go to them, and I'm going to say, it was great seeing you, your name and your name, and hopefully I remember. But if I don't do that two or three Sundays in a row, I forget. And then it's like, oh, what was their name? Right? Um, I could maybe come up with a first name for everybody in this room. Maybe. But if I started, and I started over here, by the time I get to like number six, I'm going to blank out and it's going to be like, uh, I know I know you, right? I, that just, it, it can happen. But we, so we're only talking about eight families, eight people right here. The first step is knowing people by name. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, God says, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. You know, last week we saw how God is so incomparably great that He has named all of the stars, the billions and trillions and, and billions of trillions of stars in the universe, and, and how He knows us even so intimately that He knows how many hairs are on each of our heads. He calls us by name. We can't really love people and say, say hi to them if we don't know their name. So here's what, here's what I want you to do. On that sheet right there, I want you to take the next few seconds and I want you to write down the names of your neighbors if you can. Those who live around you. First and last names of all of the adults that live in that house. Okay? As many close to eight as you can get to. Now, that's your immediate neighbors. Think about the homes that are closest to you, the eight homes that are closest to you. Okay? Write, write these down. Don't, if you get to five and you're like, well, I need three more. So you go four more houses over and pick that person because you know their name. No. Immediate neighbors, eight. And then I also want you to write down in each one of those squares some piece of information that you know about that person. A hobby or uh, maybe a job where they lived before, something like that. Something only that you would know if you'd had a conversation with them. Go. Go. Thank you. 
today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? All those nights when you've got no light, the check is in the mail. And your little angel hung the cat up by its tail. And your third fiance didn't show. Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name. All right, for time, we're going to have to keep moving here. But uh, So if you, if you didn't get there, finish later. Um, anybody recognize that song? Right? Cheers. The, the, most memor- the, the, the most memorable line in that is what? You want to go where everybody knows your name. And, and as, I, as I've pondered that, I thought, and, and I, I will admit, I watched that TV show growing up, actually. And uh, the amazing thing is, whenever somebody would come into that bar, what would happen? Everybody would yell that person's name, right? Everybody would know who that person is. And, and I often wondered, why is it that Norm goes to that bar every night of his single, living with his mother life? Does he not have any other friends? Does he not have any neighbors who know his name and who want to spend time with him? It's just a TV show, right? How many of you were able to fill out all of the names of, of the adults um, on, in all eight spaces? R- raise your hand. I, I want to uh, raise a hand. There's two, three, four, five, six, five. Okay? Well, um, Dave Runyon, the author of this book, says that about 10% of us, of, of everybody that's ever tried to do this, can actually remember, can, actually knows the, the eight people. Only 10%. And, and, and the percentages go down from there. It's like 6% of the people know specific information, uh, you know, unique information that they would have had to gather by a single conversation. And like 3% actually have a, a kind of a deep relationship where they, they help each other and that sort of thing. Um, in fact, they actually call this the chart of shame because it's pretty convicting, isn't it? When we really think about where we live and the people that live around us. Now, this series isn't about guilt and it's not about shame. This series is going to be about action. What are we going to do with what we just re- realized? Uh, like I said, there's at least four of the eight of my neighbors that I don't know by name. I, I probably know more personal information about them than I, than I know their name. So here's the first thing. Uh, we're going to ask God to help us do these two steps. The first thing is this. Just walk across the street and meet your neighbors. Maybe you have to drive down the road. Maybe you're going to have to drive a couple sections over. Whoever those eight neighbors are, um, the, the first challenge is to walk across the street and meet them. Find out their names. And if you're new to the community, it's actually kind of easier for you because you can go and say something like, hey, we just moved here and, and we really wanted to, to, to make a step to, to meet those that are our neighbors that live around us. Hi, I'm David Anderson and, um, you know, it's nice to meet you and that sort of thing. And, and just, 
get to know their names. Maybe a good thing for you, and it is a good thing for me, is to maybe once you get back to the car or back to the house, write it down so that you can repeat it several times and, and remember it until it's in your memory to where you never draw a blank, to where you never go say hi to that person and you can't actually say their name. Uh, it, it maybe, maybe you're a baker. Maybe you like to bake things and you could sweeten the pot a little bit. Take them a plate of chocolate chip cookies or something. That always warms my heart when somebody comes to the door with a plate of chocolate chip cookies. Uh, now, I know for some of you here, uh, this is going to be harder than others. You, you're an introvert. And you're, you're hearing me say, do this, and you're just like kind of, you know, you can sense the anxiety kind of welling up inside you at the, even the thought of, of, of considering this. Uh, and, and you are. It's going to take more energy, and it's going to take more initiative, initiative on your part. But there is actually power in being an introvert because, you see, not all of your neighbors are extroverts. You have introvert neighbors. So in getting to know some of your neighbors and finding out that you have a neighbor that's an introvert, you have something that you can share in common. And you understand a little bit about them and what makes them tick. Uh, there's a woman who spoke at this year's Willow Creek Leadership Summit who wrote a New York best-selling uh, book entitled Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Okay, her, if, you wanna, if you're an introvert and you'd like to read this book, her name is Susan Cain. Susan Cain, C-A-I-N. And the book is t- entitled Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And in this book, she says this. Sometimes it helps to be a pretend extrovert. Sometimes introverts have to do that. They have to step out and kind of be an extrovert. There will always be time to be quiet later, she says. But in the long run, staying true to your temperament is key. Love is essential. Gregariousness is optional. So if you are more of an introvert, don't worry about that. God is going to have compassion on you and He's going to help you. And, and I, I wonder if for those of us who if this comes easier and we're more of an extrovert, I think God knows that too and maybe the standard might be a little bit higher for what we actions we take. So the first thing in this art of neighboring is to just walk across the street and meet the people who live around you. And we can all do this. We can all do this. The second thing is this. Just walk across the street and pray for your neighbors. Walk across the street and pray for your neighbors. Now, this, this one doesn't involve meeting your neighbors. I'm not talking about, you know, laying your hands on them and saying, can I pray for you and that sort of thing. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking a prayer walk and walking through your neighborhood in front of the houses of the people that are your neighbors and praying for them. And I'm going to ask you to do this once a week for the next four weeks. Now, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not talking about sitting in your chair at home praying for all of your neighbors, although that's good. I'm talking about taking an action, walking out your door, walking up the sidewalk. Maybe for some of you, it is actually getting in the pickup and driving down to the next farm and driving by their place. And as you drive by, you pray for them. And, and, you, don't, and, and you pray for what I said earlier. You pray that God would bless them. That, that, that as you do that, 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 it is, that you are intending good into their life. Not, Lord, I pray that they would move and go somewhere else. That's not the prayer. 
it's actually loving them. Nehemiah entered the historical record when the Emerald City, Jerusalem, was a mess. It was, it, it was, it was rubble. And he went on two walks, actually. Uh, the first walk that Nehemiah went on was about 900 miles from Babylon, where he was enjoying a cushy lifestyle, to a place where he had a burden for 1.9 million steps he had to walk to get from Babylon to Jerusalem. And when he walked, as he walked there, he prayed. And when he arrived, before he even talked to one person about rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the city, what did he do? At night, he got on a donkey and he walked, rode around the city wall to inspect it and to pray. To pray for the neighbors, to pray for the neighborhoods that they were going to be rebuilding. And then the next morning, he gets... And he gathers the folks in Nehemiah 2, 17 and 18. And this is what he says. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. I don't know how many steps Nehemiah walked that night when he went around the city wall. But the vision for a great neighborhood started when Nehemiah just went around and he began praying. And, and, and what if we began going around and we began praying for our neighbors and our neighborhoods? What might God do in the lives of the people that live around us? Because, folks, our world is in a shambles. It's a wreck. And, and, and when I close, I'm going to pray for our neighbors. And we have neighbors who who are single moms and single dads, and we have neighbors who are in broken families, and, and, and we have neighbors that are hurting. And kind of a thought that comes to my mind is, if not us, then who? Who has the message of hope that can be brought to them? So, two things. Meet your neighbors and at least once a week through this series, so four times, just walk around at least and pray for each neighbor. In Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, it says this, from one, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The point here is that God has placed each and every one of us in the community, in the neighborhood that, that we have been placed in. So let's walk across the street and meet our neighbors. And let's walk across the street and pray. Now, in your worship folders, tear off that Connect card if you haven't already. And, and on your My Next Steps is a place where you can say, I will walk across the street. I will begin praying. And, and sometimes I find it helpful for us to, for it to get from our head to our heart to actually move our hand and make a check in a box that says, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to do this. So if you would... Mark that. And if you're going to commit to that, go ahead and mark that. And you can put that in your Bible. If there's other information that we need, go ahead and place that in the offering plate. Maybe mark it. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe write those things on your, on your who is my neighbor chart right here. Take this home. Put it on a magnet on your refrigerator as a reminder to pray. 
You know, you know what? Maybe one of your neighbors comes over and they see this on the refrigerator and they're like, you've been stalking me? What, what's going on here, right? You can say, no, you know what? This is just a reminder for me to pray for my neighbors. I, I'm praying for you. Now, there are, I would say, just an estimate, about a hundred families that call North Hills their church home. It, it could be more, I think. I don't know. Let's just say it's a hundred. Um, if 100 of us learn to love even five neighbors on this chart that we have, and the average household of our neighbors is three, that's 1,500 people in the next four weeks that are going to be prayed for and that are going to be met. Think, of, think about that number. 1,500. There's no way I could do that. There's no way you could do that individually, but together as a church, as God's family, 1,500 people in southeastern Wyoming and western Nebraska, and, and I don't know the population of western Nebraska, but I do know Goshen County. It's about 17,000 people. That's almost 10%. That's almost 10% of our county could have at least one good neighbor. I don't mean good as pure either. I mean good as reaching out to them and loving them. I think that's a big deal. And I hope that you will join and continue in the next three weeks through this series. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for the challenge that we've been given. Father, I pray that, that, that we would recognize that, that, that there is some conviction when it comes to thinking about our neighbors and, and our lack of knowledge about them and humanly speaking and personally, but Lord, I, I pray that as we leave here today, uh, Father, I pray that, that, we would, that we would have this love that you have welling up in our hearts that says, you know what? I want to love my neighbors like God loves me. Lord, I pray. Oh, Father, help our hearts to beat passionately for people like your heart does. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us over the next three remaining weeks to practically, in a very real way, love our neighbors. And Lord, as we close this morning, I'm reminded of those neighbors that we do have. Lord, the neighbor who's all alone, the widow or the widower. Lord, that, that neighbor that has that teenager who's just, just on the edge of life. Lord, for the single parents who are trying to keep it all together moms and dads. Lord, that couple that isn't sleeping in, or that couple that's sleeping in separate bedrooms. Lord, the neighbors that we have that are going through a divorce or all those families that are trying to live in love, God, help us to be agents of your love. Might your kingdom come on earth in my neighborhood in our neighborhoods. And now, Lord Jesus, we want to worship you. We want to lift you high as the one and only Savior, the Messiah, the God of the universe. As, we're, as we partake of communion this morning, Lord, draw our hearts to you. Help us to remember that sacrifice over 2,000 years ago that you made 
as you physically walked this planet, as you breathed our oxygen, as you felt the whips and the curses. You were raised on a cross and you died. You were placed in a tomb and you didn't stay there. You are so powerful that you overcame death and sin. You paid that price for us. Oh Lord, we praise you and thank you for that this morning. As we partake of communion, we remember that, we celebrate that. Jesus Christ, our Savior, whose body was broken and blood was shed. Thank you. And Lord, may we have some of that grace and mercy and love pour out of our lives into the lives of those people that live around us and help us to actually love our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you don't have to be a member of North Hills to participate in communion. Just a follower of Jesus. And as we celebrate something that Jesus said we are to celebrate until he returns, the bread represents his body broken for us. The cup represents the blood that he shed. If I could have the servers come up and pass the bread and the cup together, take one of each and then partake of the bread and then the juice as you are ready. Stars, they find them.